questions, and then we'll go from there. Uh, regarding the poem that I ended with, it's called Believe Me If All Those Endearing Young Charms. Spoken by a lover to his or her beloved. And basically it's saying, you're beautiful and young and healthy now. And if you change in the course of time, that will have no effect on the level of my love. My love will remain um, just as it is now. And uh, I'll be seeing the changes, but they won't matter. That would be the unconditional yes to how people change and how love could endure. So love keeps changing too because you're going to show it in different ways. For instance, the way you love your seven-year-old son is different from the way you love your 17-year-old or 27-year-old and so forth. But it's love nonetheless. And then it ends with uh, the metaphor of the sunflower. It looks at the sun coming up with the same serenity as when it goes down. Or as Shakespeare says, a man must endure his going hence even as his coming hither. In other words, we go along with dying the way we went along with being born. We joined in the process of being born and we're going to join in the process of dying. So that would be an example of the unconditional yes to the whole story of being human. So, leftover questions? Okay, uh, right here. If you want to raise your hand again. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm really... You are... I, oh, I'm Sandra. Sandra. Nice. Hi. Um, I'm really enjoying you and this presentation today very much. Thank you. Um, and I just have a burning image that I just wanted to share with everyone regarding unconditional yes that has um, stayed with me since I found out about it many, 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 many years ago. But um, when John Lennon met Yoko Ono, he went to her art exhibit in New York and there was one piece where there was a stepladder that was leading up to a telescope. And John asked her if he could climb up the ladder. And she said, of course. And so he did, and he looked through the telescope, and all that it said was yes. 
And it was at that moment that he fell in love with her, she went home with him, and they were together off and on, and then really together at the end. So to me, that represents this enormous, you know, unconditional yes. So that's all. Um, This is still on. Thank you. Am I doing something wrong, or I th- was that on your microphone or on? Oh, you want to check? On. It's on now. Okay. Uh, yeah. Is that on? Yeah. Um, I had a question in, or maybe a comment about the synchronicity. And um, I found myself thinking that that, to me, seemed like maybe a way of dulling the thud is believing in synchronicity um, and wondering if there was something to be gained from the idea that things don't have to go my way in order to be happy um, or something about letting go of control, that plans are about me controlling what happens and accepting that I could be okay even if I don't have control. It seems like synchronicity could potentially still be that, but something better is coming, like consolation. Well, we would want to watch out for superstition or wishful thinking, as in something better is coming because we don't know about that. Our safer style would be, I'm open to what comes next. I'll let the chips fall where they may and I will be able to make the best of how they fall. That I can trust, but I can't say something better is coming along. That's um, the kind of superstitious style that, again, saves us from having to grieve. So this practice that we're working on is a total openness to what may come our way, trusting that we'll either have the resources within us to handle it or we will look for the resources that are everywhere available to us now. And regarding control, now we understand what we're up to when we are trying to stay in control. We're trying so hard to make sure that it comes out our way, then we won't have to grieve that it didn't come out our way. way. So much hinges on this whole dance that we do with a natural inclination, namely to to mourn and hospice 
that which is going away or has gone and to welcome in that which is headed in our direction. But that's precisely what the hero does in the hero story. When Dorothy is told, well, to find what you want, you would follow this yellow brick road. Then without question, she starts to follow it. And when the time comes to leave, and she's told, if you do click your heels together, you'll be able to leave, then she gladly does that. So she gladly steps onto the yellow brick road. She gladly clicks her heels together. That's a whole journey of yes. And by the way, when you say in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, thy will is nothing less than pure reality over which we have no control. Thy will be done is the same as help me say yes to what happens. What is thy will? It's whatever happens. And let that be done instead of the way I want it to be done. So with this kind of an attitude, uh, we find out more about the nature of therapy and the nature of human change. It will always begin with sitting in the yes of what is. And from that position you're likely to see what comes next. Fritz Perls, founder of of, uh, Gestalt Therapy, he was asked this question once at Esalen. Well, you've taught us how to work things out and resolve issues from our past, to work with that whole Gestalt, what do we do after we've come to this place of resolution? He gave such a beautiful answer, and I'll never forget it. He said, you will sit on the dock, and you will look out at the horizon, and you'll be ready for the next ship that comes into view. And then you'll know what to do. Isn't that beautiful? So you'll just be sitting in this attitude of openness and you'll see something coming across the horizon and you'll engage in some way and that'll start the next gestalt experience. But where did it come from? It came from the original yes that moved you into resolution. So yes is always the starting point. Other questions about any of this? Uh, Right here.
Ellen. Thank you. So my question is, yes, but what about no? Where's the place? I mean, everything has to have a, a positive and a negative. Where, how does no fit in or, or where does no fit in? Oh, uh, she's saying sometimes it is no. And no would have to do with setting your boundaries. So even that no is a yes to yourself. So that would fit. I'm remembering St. Saint, Saint Paul's statement about Jesus. In him, there was only yes. In him, there was only yes. Like, what's my life purpose? And everything I do is a yes to moving it along. I said to myself once, I wonder what my life would have been like if every decision I made was in keeping with what the Holy Spirit wanted, the spirit of wisdom. What if every choice had been like that? Of course, it's impossible for anybody to do that. But um, I wondered about it. The only thing I could come up with to console myself for all my mistakes was, well, I'll, uh, I'll keep that in mind for future reference. <laughs> Um, there was another question. Yeah, or right here. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, my name is John. Um, Hi. I, I <clears throat> want to talk about fear um, because we. I sort of thought about bringing this up when we first read the um, the card uh, at the beginning, but fear to me is sometimes very subtle and difficult for me to identify. This is me personally. I mean, larger fears that are a result of, say, trauma or something, you know, very dramatic in one's life, that fear is easy to uh, conceptualize and then easy to uh, work on. You know, you don't sort of know what you're working on until you know what it is. Um, I think that I act in ways that are a result of fear that are really subtle that I'm not really aware of. And so, you know, when I initially read this, you know, fear much less, fear much less, I don't feel that I go through life in fear necessarily. I mean, I'm I feel secure and I feel safe for the most part, and yet I know that subtly under you know, under the surface, I do have fears that that make things difficult, make making appropriate decisions difficult. So I guess my question for you is how can I get a better sense of what some of those more subtle fears are that mm. are impacting my life? Well, I'm going on to fear is my very next topic, so I'm going to go into that in detail. But ask me again if I don't cover <clears throat> what you just brought up. But yes, I'm going to go into that. Uh, somebody right here... Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Um, 
I've been thinking about this since we started with the affirmation. Yeah. Um, so how do you love in the face of cruelty? Um, and, um, and I'm also thinking about fear, but I'm also thinking about hatred. Um, when I, you know, hear things on the news, like, you know, this thing that happened with the journalist yeah. in Turkey. Um, how can you approach that with love or with yes, uh, when things so unspeakable happen? Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because it's on the topic of um, forgiving the unforgivable. Um, So first let's ask ourselves what it would mean to remember that, first of all, that the spiritual dimension of any experience is always what brings you to more. So that's the first step. So if you were to say, instead of just answering Sarah's question psychologically with, how do I hold myself stably in the world and maintain my own integrity and self-esteem, by uh, not acting with cruelty as other people do? And is there a way to confront the human shadow, the dark side of all of us, in such, uh, in such compassion and loving kindness that I'm not overwhelmed by it and I'm not turning against it. Now she's asking a more spiritual question. She's going to the more. What is this more? Well, when someone is cruel, then the natural reaction is to feel uh, a strong anger. So we would feel rage. We would also have some kind of a desire that this person be punished. So that's the revenge. We would um, feel resentment toward the one who was cruel and the ones who let him or her get away with it. And we would want the worst to happen to that person who was so cruel and abusive. In other words, we would feel ill will. So, first response, coming from the primitive side of myself, is simply to feel rage, revenge, resentment, and ill will. But if I have a spiritual practice which invites me to something more than the ordinary primitive response, all of which looks quite justified, 
given what terrible things this person has done. If instead of simply remaining in my rage, revenge, resentment, and ill will, I were to feel the grief of what happens, as we've been talking about, I would gradually let go of my rage, revenge, resentment, and ill will, while at the same time engaging in whatever healthy protest and amends the society was offering, the letting go of, and this applies not only to people who are cruel or do unforgivable things, but also to anyone who has hurt us, including our parents in our childhood, instead of feeling all these uh, negative things against them, we could let go of these as a result of holding the original events with grief and compassion, engaging in protests and amends. And this letting go has an English word to describe it. It's the word forgiveness. What does it mean to forgive then? Not to excuse what happened, but to let go of the negative way of engaging with it so that you become possessed by the same shadow side that led the original perpetrators to do what they did. When you let go of all this, that's the equivalent of forgiveness. And from the forgiveness, your protest and amends become even more empowered. So now I have gone to the more In other words, I have found a spiritual practice to deal with the harsh, severe, dark side of humanity. Or another way of putting it briefly, now to make it more personal, if anyone hates or hurts me, what is my spiritual practice? What are the possibilities that open up for me? Let's look at three options. First is the one I just mentioned. We can respond from our primitive cave ancestry dimension in our psyche, which is still there. It didn't go away when we became civilized. We still have that amygdala with its collective response of hate and revenge. It's still inside us. It didn't go away. Even though now we have courts and justice, that didn't change that little... um, part of us that um, is tied to 
equal cruelty toward those who were cruel toward us or toward people we love. But look, in the origins of civilization, people came up with what's called the golden rule. This was an advance. It showed this primitive brain, oh, you you have an amygdala, and from that amygdala you will give these hateful ill will responses, but you could also start a new spiritual practice. It's the first spiritual practice ever invented, and all religions agreed with it. Do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Simple, straightforward. But instead of stopping there, since our whole style as a humanity is continual evolution, we moved even further than the golden rule. We moved to something that was taught to us by very specially evolved and enlightened teachers, such as Buddha, Christ, St. Francis, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Dalai Lama, Bishop Tutu, they came up with something more than golden rule. They said, instead of only doing to others as you would have them do to you, you could go one step further and do good to those who have hurt you. A shocking, over-the-top proposal, which the ego will mock and scorn and say, well, that's ridiculous. Whoever heard such a thing? So when someone hates or hurts me, watch. I can hate or hurt them back. Option one. Primitive. I can go to my golden rule. I can not hate or hurt them. Or I can go one step further and find a way to help them see the light, show them loving kindness, metta, do spiritual practices for them, pray for them. And now I'm going to the more. I'm doing good to those who don't seem to deserve it. Or another way of saying it is, There is no word deserve in the third category. Everybody deserves kindness. And so it isn't based on whether you hate or hurt and so forth. So let's use one more simple way of understanding it. 
we, we always have the three options. It, when you choose option one, which is get back at them for what they did, you are like <clears throat> the guys in the Godfather movies. That's as far in consciousness as you got. You're like one of them. When you go to Golden Rule, you're Mr. Rogers (laughs) or Atticus Finch. When you go to do good to those who hate you, you're Christ, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Dalai Lama. Always the choice, and I ask myself, how far do I want to go? If you only want to go as far as golden rule, no problem. At least you do no harm. Want to go the next step to do good? You're going to need special graces. How do you get these graces? The continual practice of loving kindness, of metta. May all beings be happy. May I be happy. May those I love be happy. May those to whom I'm indifferent be happy. May those who have hurt me be happy. And may everyone be happy. When I do this over and over again, I open myself to the grace that is the gift dimension of my psyche that opens up into a whole new way of being which seems to make no sense to the ego, but makes me feel as if I have discovered in myself what is really bigger than anything I could have found in Psychology 101. I have located a chamber inside, what St. Teresa calls the interior castle. I have entered the interior castle where all the rules have changed. They don't get back at each other. They don't hate and hurt. They do good to those who hurt them. So I have that choice, and I may not be able just to go there instantly. I may need some help. That's the grace dimension but it's always available. The loving kindness practice is precisely about this. Because it doesn't say everybody except the ones in Turkey who did this terrible thing. It doesn't say everybody's included except the perpetrators of abuse. It says all beings And if Buddha came up with this plan, which he came up with, by the way, because the monks were so afraid, he said, this will help you get over your fear. Just start loving more. And he taught them this practice. When we go this way, something opens up inside and we realize that what we have admired in saints and enlightened beings, 
was always inside ourselves. So how do you find it? You find it by going to something beyond just uh, golden rule, and that's forgiving the unforgivable. When forgiving means giving up ill will, revenge, rage, and resentment. And who would want to carry those around anyway? One would think you'd have a much nicer life without those. You asked the question. Did I answer? Did you have more? Tell me. Now hold it. Claudine, yeah, right behind you. Did what I just say seem too far out? It'll take a lot of practice. I'm still practicing. Because every fiber of my being, from my Italian background, it's all Godfather. It takes a long time to exorcise those demons. So I think I understood. Um, I guess my other, the other thing that is a struggle for me is the despondency when, when you know, I see and hear just the the cruelty and the injustice. It's um, how to um, how to not give in to just the feeling of despondency that that this that that it's that these terrible things just will happen and um i i know that um you know the serenity prayer doesn't quite make it for me with this you know to accept the things i cannot change um i know i can't um but it's very difficult to um to come kind of rise out of that feeling that of just this, this awfulness, you know, aside from the, you know, the feelings of, you know, wanting to revenge and those things. Is, it's the, the feeling of what is it, how do I lift my spirit back up after, you know, in the face of these sorts of things? Okay, I think I understand. It would be um, first always sitting in exactly the condition that you're in. I'm remembering this quote from women who run with the wolves. We will sit in the ashes of what we have been and then we will rise like a phoenix into what we will be. So I'm going to sit with all my fellow humans in this dark, briary place in my collective human psyche. And I'm going to acknowledge that what people do that's so cruel is what I too could do.
And this sense of oneness with all humanity in light and dark is what lifts us from the despondency because it gives us a sense of connection and compassion. This is our Buddhist teaching. There won't be an answer. Um, I'm uh, taking an online course on Paradise Lost, the great poem by John Milton. And part of it is understanding what's meant by the Messiah. Um, And the Messiah is a person, not a God, but a person who will bring all the Jewish people together in in, in Israel and he will free them from the terrible oppression that they have experienced over the centuries and he will create a new kingdom in which there will be no war, no violence, no hate, no cruelty. And when I heard, read that, I thought to myself, that's the wish that we're living on. But it's not realistic because the human psyche isn't set up that way. It has sets of opposites inside, dark and light, male and female, let go and hold on, effort and grace. So you can't say that someday half of us will disappear. All you can say is, I'm part of that and I'm going to do my best not to act it out. Instead, to go to my new option, which is protest and amends. Once I was giving a talk to a Buddhist group, and I said, you know, any questions? And this one person said, "Uh, do you think the world is getting any better? And uh, I didn't have an answer, but an answer came to me. This was kind of a grace in my mind. The uh, killings of school children in Connecticut had just happened that same week. And we, in the group, had just done our meditation. Now I had given a Dharma talk, and then we were having questions and answers. So I just said automatically without thinking, when I think of what happened in Connecticut, my answer is, things are not getting better. But when I look at all of us sitting this way, I think things are getting better. And that's the only answer you can give, that both are happening. Otherwise, you'll be stuck in extremism. Everybody follow? Okay, we had another question. Uh, Okay. The woman here in the back. 
Hi, I uh, had a question about, um, uh, I guess, uh, part of the dullings uh, in religion about sort of uh, the element of something that's eternal is being more of a myth. And I'm curious, sort of, um, in events of loss and, and sort of relationships ending and things like that, there's always the sense that I guess the grace element of the endings of those things does have that that kind of quality of infinity in some ways that uh, after the loss of my grandparents, there's a sense that they'd always love me or or it's kind of like a lingering smile that's kind of ingrained in you for the rest of your life. Um, or after the loss of a relationship, um, that the way they love the world is now part of the way you love the world. Mm. Um, and there's, and to those things, there's always that grace element and the element that it would never go away without kind of, I don't know, it's not a rational brain processing, but just a kind of knowing. And I'm curious to what your take is on that. Is that another way of dulling, or is that something that's... I, I like it very much. It's a very beautiful way to look at it. You're reminding me of... Um, um, in the Christian religion, there's a, a belief called the communion of saints. I'll explain what this means, but first I'll point out that prior to Christianity in ancient Greece, there was the belief that the great heroes and great athletes from the games, Olympic games and so forth, who had died were uh, rooting for us, other humans still here on earth. And they were trying to encourage us and help us when we ourselves were facing conflicts that you could rely not only on your own bodily resources, but on the other former athletes and military heroes who were also Greek and who cared about your success. Isn't that a beautiful way of looking at it? And then carry that over into Christianity, there's a belief called the communion of saints, which means that the, the, the people who have died and are now in heaven experiencing their reward are not just sitting there enjoying their reward. They are continually looking down at us and trying to help us. And that we don't feel alone here. We're looking up at them and praying to them, asking them for help because it's all one communion, living and dead, and we're all helping each other. In fact, St. Therese of French saint of the 19th century 
said, I will not spend my heaven getting some kind of reward. I will spend my heaven doing good on earth. Isn't that a beautiful way of looking at it? Irrespective of whether there's a heaven. Don't go there. (laughs) Just the fact that humans think this way, that they actually believe that we keep caring about each other and we keep trying to help each other. What a beautiful quality in us. That alone, that's all you need. You don't have to believe that there are actual saints helping you unless that's your belief. But just to know that somebody thought of it is just such a beautiful realization. Okay, any other? Okay, right here. Let's have one last question, then we're going to go on to talk about fear. On that, uh, Corky, on that same note, um, I was with a, a Zuni gentleman recently, and he, um, we were trading mythology stories and different personal stories, and he um, slipped right into a conversation about recent conversations with his parents. They were both deceased but he talked to his parents and their parents frequently and felt their counsel, their support, and also was able to continue to resolve unfinished emotional business with them um, just conversationally as if they were right there with him Mm. just because of his belief that they were there. Well, thank you. That makes sense. You're reminding me of um, one of the resources that I have on my website, just to let you know about it. Um, I gave a class in Santa Barbara. It was 12 weeks long. And it's, uh, you know, we met for 12 times for like an hour and a half. And these were recorded. And uh, the title of them is Growing Pains and Growing Up. And they're specifically about how to do the work on your childhood that then helps you resolve the things that happen between you and your parents so that you can go on to have a healthy relationship. So it's how your early life can dictate the way you are in an adult relationship and how you can look into that and free yourself from it. So if you are interested, um, I do recommend it. Because uh, it's not just a class like learning about a topic. It um, brings up all kinds of realizations about what happened to us in early life. And uh, I've had good responses from people about it. So if you're interested, um, it's uh, on the website, daverico.com under downloads.
Um, and I think there's also, there, you could also check on the table outside uh, about getting it in the form of a uh, thumb drive. But anyway, that's what I recommend for working on the past. So let's go on to this topic of fear. Since all five of these, uh, all five of these givens of life and many other givens bring up fear, I'm afraid things won't go my way, plans won't work out, I'm afraid I won't get a fair deal. I'm afraid of how people will be disloyal to me, etc. So we're going to have to have some way of working with our fear. And as in everything that we're doing today, it will have to have something to do with where yes will take us. So that leads us to step one and how to work with fear. It is to simply to say yes to the fact that we are afraid and to admit that we are feeling fear. Don't use euphemisms like I'm feeling uncomfortable or I'm a little concerned. Something like what the dentist says, you will feel a slight pressure. <laughs> and when I hear that drill turned on, I know that was a euphemism. <laughs> so we're going to admit that we're afraid. That's the yes. Yes, I am afraid. And so what? That's totally human. Secondly, I'm going to say yes to feeling the fear. So it's yes to naming Rumpelstiltskin. Once I name him, he's no longer going to be so fierce. Secondly, I'm going to allow the feeling to have its full career. Instead of looking for, yeah, allow the feeling. Uh, instead of looking for an out, I'll turn on the TV, I'll have a snack, I will turn to drugs or alcohol, I'll take a Xanax. No, I'm just going to stay right here and allow that fear to go through me. That's the second part of the yes. And the third is the simplest and yet hardest one. I'm going to act as if or so that the fear could not do two things. Easy to remember. It's the two things a car does. Go. It's not going to, I'm going to act as, act as if the fear 
cannot drive me or stop me. So I admit that I'm afraid of the given of change. I allow myself to feel it. And I act as if it can't stop me from getting on with my own life. Doctor says, you should take this test now that you're over 50 so that you will find out if you have the beginnings of cancer. I will admit to my, as I leave the office, I will admit to myself that I'm afraid to take such a test. I will allow myself to feel afraid of finding out what the test may show. And while admitting that I'm afraid to take the test, and while allowing myself to feel fear about the test, while doing those two things, I will call the number he gave me of the lab and I will set up the appointment to take the test. It didn't stop me. That's the equivalent of I have disabled its bully power. So I admit, I allow, I act. Everybody follow? I said to myself a while back, and it was such a wonderful, life-changing realization. I was liberating myself. I said, David, don't even bother trying to get rid of fear. You never will. But the one thing you don't have to do is act on it. You'll never get rid of it. But as long as you're not acting on it, you nullified it. So it reduced down to a simple feeling. It did not dictate what you're going to do next. The yes to these three is how we defang the bully of fear. Now we're going to be able to experience these givens of our life, including our own personal givens, our own limitations and gifts. And we're going to be totally okay with them. Everybody follow? Questions about this part? And you had asked about fear and uh, to respond to his question about the deeper meaning or purpose of fear, it has a healthy purpose. Remember originally I said, since we're going to experience loss, it would be a cruel joke 
if the universe didn't also give us a resource to deal with loss. Yes, it did. It gave us the resource of grieving. That's how you let go. But we also live in a world of danger and threat. So there must be a resource for dealing with danger or threat. This resource is courage. But what's the cue? How do we know that we're experiencing danger or threat? The cue is fear. It's the middle between danger and courageous action. We need the feeling of fear to recognize the danger. See a rattlesnake, feel fear. Use whatever you learned from Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts about what one does when facing a rattlesnake and do that. That's the courageous action. But if you didn't feel fear, you wouldn't know how to activate yourself. Everybody follow? So that's what I consider the, shall we say, survival purpose of fear. So when Roosevelt said, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Nameless fear that stops us from fully advancing. Yeah, that is the only thing to fear, is that the fear itself would stop you. But if the fear no longer stops you, because now you have a program, then it's not quite so scary. Okay, we had a question here and then here. So we'll have two questions and we take our break. Hi, uh, I'm Patrick. Um, I was wondering if for the allowing, it has to go with the fear and also the idea of grieving as well. When you're allowing the feeling to kind of flow through you and be part of you and admitting that you have it, when do you know that you have (coughs) not just kind of stopped that from happening and or just kind of distracted yourself in some way? Because the difference between drive and stop seems as if like, oh, fear didn't stop me from feel, doing this, but maybe you just like, kind of distracted yourself in some other way. Same thing with grieving, where if you, where, when do you know that you're truly let go, and when do you know that you've, or how do you know you didn't accidentally just kind of ignore it and get distracted? Because there's lots of things in life that happen, work and things like that, that maybe you get excited about and interested about. But, Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, keep the microphone because I'm going to answer, but then I'm going to check with you to see if I get to what you're bringing up. So part of this is trusting that all feelings have the same path, which is the bell-shaped curve. Something scares me, I start to feel afraid. I'm quaking in fear. And when I admit 
and allow and act in accord with whatever the courageous plan is, my three A's, I notice that this demon releases me. Then I go back to baseline until I get to the next threat. And then I will do it again. You would have to trust this. That you won't just be stuck if you stay with the program. Simple example. I'm afraid to take the test. Fear of taking the test. Certainly ends when you take the test. We can all agree to that. I'm not going to fear taking the test after I already took the test. New fear. I fear the test results. Now we start on fear number two. And we go back to, I admit that I'm afraid of finding out the results. I allow myself to feel afraid of finding out the results. And I make the appointment to talk to the doctor about the results. And from that, you're going to go to the fear of what the results showed or no fear. And on to his next suggestion for some other test. Anyway, it's trusting that when you stay with uh, the total yes to the career of fear, the total yes to the confrontation with the bully, that it will have this bell-shaped curve that uh, ultimately releases you. Did you have more to your question? No, I like the idea of calling it the career of fear, though. So it's not just a single incident. It's a kind of thing that no. will be coming up. No, it's the kind of feeling that has a beginning, middle, and end. We all had the fear of how we did on the mid- midterms. Nobody in here now has a fear of how you will do on the midterms. Because we're not taking any more midterms. <laughs> it, had a, it had a career, and it ended on the day you got your mark, your grade. That was the end of fear of what you will get on the midterm. Now you have the fear, will that kind of mark make it possible for me to get into a college? Then you got your letter from the college saying you've been accepted. That's the end of that fear. Now it's the fear of will I make it through the whole college career, etc. So they come up one after another, but they do get laid to rest one at a time. Um, You had a question right here. 
I'm glad we're on this topic because everybody can relate to it. Don't you think? Or are there some people in here that don't have any fears? Or, okay. So I have a comment. Because I did have a client once who said that to me. He said, I can never remember having a fear. I have no fears whatsoever. I thought, what an unusual person. <laughs> I was, you know, trying to understand. Yeah, I wonder what kind of a childhood he had that led to no fear. And of course, we're not forgetting the 23rd Psalm. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. So, the original Hebrew doesn't mention uh, it isn't like that. The original Hebrew is this. Though I walk through the dark valley, I will not be afraid, for thou art with me. Though I walk through the dark valley, that's answering your question. Though I'm with this dark humanity, I will not be afraid. I will not be bullied by the dark side. For thou art with me. Or another way of saying it is, when I experience my fear in the context of a holding environment, it's never so bad. I saw a movie once about a, I don't remember the name, but it was about a, a teenage girl who met up with a guy in his 20s who was a, uh, a, a drug dealer and a pimp. This guy hooked her on heroin and then pimped her out. So she had a hor- we we watching the film see that she's having a horrible life. She's addicted and she's doing all these dangerous sexual things. Anyway, somehow she uh, meets up with people who are trying to help her. She goes to a program and she comes through it and she does recover last scene of the movie. She meets up with the original guy, the guy who's a pimp. And of course, she looks a lot better now than she did when she was dealing with him. And uh, he says, "Uh, I've thought about you over the years and I just want you to know that I'm sorry for how I messed up your life. I thought, well, that was good. But then this is what she said, and this was the last sentence of the film. And I thought, oh my God, this is so profound. She said, it wasn't so much that I went through all those terrible things 
things. It was that I had to visit the dark side of the moon alone. And I quote, she she said that, she said, I had to visit the dark side of the moon alone. I thought, yes, that was worse than all the things she went through. Not to be in the holding environment, just to be isolated, which so many of us felt in childhood, is the opposite of, though I walk through the valley of, the dark valley, I will not be afraid, for thou art with me. This thou is whatever is higher power for you. But if you have no higher power, this thou is our fellow humanity. Just somebody who walks through something with you. That's all it takes. It doesn't have to be a God. Just anybody who's willing to go with you in the dark times. This is what makes it possible to survive and come out the other end, as she did, recovered. Okay, we had one last question. Yes. So I really liked when you talked about um, having the fear and anxiety, but not having it stop you or drive you. It reminds me of this beautiful drawing by Stephen Hayes, who created Acceptance and Commitment Psychotherapy. He has this, this picture of a car that is, has a guy in there, or a woman, with a fear and anxiety being these huge monstrous things doing the thing. And but what he teaches you then is to put them in the back seat and you're the driver and you do anyway what you want to do, which is really great because we can't get rid of them anyway. But my question has to do with um, staying with fear and anxiety because it seems like sometimes my clients, it's, they can do that, but sometimes it's more important for them to have a list of things to do, like calling a friend, uh, taking a walk, taking a bath writing a journal or something like that. For me, it sometimes is swimming or uh, going for a hike or something like that. Uh, so I wonder, what do you think about that? that? Would you always recommend to clients to stay with the fear? I mean, even people who are not suicidal or anything, but just it's just too intense, rather than reaching out to a friend or going for a run or a hike or something like that, which, which often yes. helps them. Yes, connecting yourself to healthy resources. I'm not talking about alcohol now, just healthy no. stuff. Yeah. healthy resources. Yeah. It activates your own resources. Okay. So that's good. Yes. That fits. And that's also the equivalent of, I'm not going through this alone. It's the sense of isolation that hurts the most. I had to visit the dark side of the moon alone. When she said that, my heart went out to her. The guy who was with her didn't understand what she meant. He had the look of, huh? But the audience got it. Okay, so let's take a short break and then we will wind up. Um, 
I just had um, a question about um, extinction anxiety, and I've had that come up a lot in my practice, and just wondering with climate change and the news that's come out, I found that my practice, um, I do depth psychology, union psychology, and, and that this is something that is coming up um, consistently. There's very few clients or patients that don't don't respond to this. And um, I, I love all that you've given us with this, and yet this feels um, to me like, I'm sorry for the tears, but it's just so sad at the... Um, severity of the moment that we're in with our dear precious planet and and so many people are aware of that now it's no longer secret or taboo to to talk about it which is good but we've also waited so long and and I don't know as a psychologist like I know it's not my I mean <laughs> my job isn't to make people feel better about it, but you know, I want to just say it's going to be okay. To, don't you know? It, it's it's a it's a big thing, and um, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that in the in that you know the elephant under the hat. If we're looking at the little prince, I can't. Mm-hmm. so she's bringing up about the fear of extinction based on all the things happening with the planet. And it seems like an appropriate fear, first of all. So we would want to begin with settling into that. That, uh, yes, this makes sense. It's understandable that you would have this fear. Um, However, um, one thing we want to be careful about... Oh... But it's still okay? Okay. So from the Jungian point of view, our psyche is both personal. So I have my own inner narrative and my own inner story that harkens back to my own personal childhood and my own experiences, and so do you. So on this side, we're all unique because no two people have the same story, even brothers and sisters. But at the same time, our psyche has a collective participation And this part is the same for all of us. This is our, shall we say, heritage from our childhood. And this is our heritage from the long history of humanity. And it's normal that in the course of life, you sometimes pick up on 
sum of the collective energy. And when you do, you can't hold it for very long because it's too big. Sometimes even your own personal story is too big to hold on to or look at fully. So you need to uh, move away from it at times. But certainly when you pick up on the collective fear, like the fear of extinction of humanity, of our gene pool, then if you hold it too long, it will overwhelm you. So that's why you have to have a way of disengaging from that side and coming back to your own personal experience. I'll give a simple example, which happened to me. Um, I was in England, and I've always had a fascination with the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII. He closed down 400 monasteries, took the wealth to use for his purposes. Anyway, I visited um, the one at Glastonbury, which is where King Arthur is buried. And I took the tour. Um, Just some few remaining structures. And uh, the woman was explaining, you know, how it was and how it was closed down, so forth. How monks were dispersed and the abbot was put to death and so forth. And for months after, I felt some kind of grief in me that I knew was not my own. So I talked to um, an English priest friend of mine. I told him I went to Glastonbury. I said, I have this grief and I can't seem to release myself from it and it isn't mine. He said, when you went to that spot, you picked up on the collective energies of pain that are still hanging there and you let it in too much when you were listening to that woman explain things and you took it on and nobody can carry the collective grief for very long. And so that's the problem. Just him telling me that helped a lot to help me release it. But that's when I figured out that going to places where there was terrible pain, like for instance, if you went to Dachau, you would feel a horrible grief and pain for a long time after because you went unshielded and it kind of possesses you for a while. So that is part of what some clients could be picking up on. An example I had is after Dr. Ford gave her testimony, I had one client after another with dreams of being abused. I thought, oh, this collective energy in the whole country 
is about this topic. And some of us are unshielded and we're letting it in. Or it could be an actual memory of what did happen. It helps us understand this poem by Emily Dickinson, which um, is called There Is a Pain So Utter, U-T-T-E-R. There is a pain so utter, it swallows substance up, then covers the abyss, with trance, so memory can step around across upon it as one within a swoon goes safely where an open eye would drop her bone by bone. So, there is a kind of pain that's too big for any one person to carry. When that kind of pain comes your way, it will swallow you up in itself. So your best bet is to find a way to circumvent the memory, not let yourself remember it fully, kind of go around it, Because in a case like this, as one within a swoon goes safely, it it would be better to faint. It will be safer to close down your consciousness where an open eye would drop her. Because if you looked at what they did to you, or if you looked at what really happened, or if you looked directly at pain that you're not ready to feel, timing, you will fragment, drop her bone by bone. So she's saying, not everything should be worked on. Some sleeping dogs are better left where they lie. There are some things that happen to you or that happen to other people in the collective that are too overwhelming for the level of resources that we have. So in a case like that, don't try to look into it. Don't try to understand it or resolve it. Just get away from it as fast as you can. Because if somebody makes you look at it, or if you yourself look at it, you will not be able to handle it. So this is what I have become aware of as part of human timing. And I've said to myself, okay, I have a certain... book of memories of my childhood and they do not these memories do not 
come through as totally overwhelming. And it helps to talk to my brother and sister. They help me see that they have similar memories and they're surviving and I'm surviving. So I'm letting that be okay with me for the rest of my life. I don't want to try to find out if something else happened. Because if I did, I might not have built up the resources to handle it. And I don't need to know anyway. Now you may think, well, this is an avoidance. But I think it's a respect for limitation. So keep this in mind. Don't be ashamed if you can never fully resolve some of the things that happened because you haven't built up the resources to deal with them. Just let that be okay and do what she suggests in the poem. Covers the abyss with trance so memory can step around So you're going to let it be okay. I'm not going to fully make contact with any of that. I'm going to step around it for the time being. If someday I'm strong enough to look into the abyss, then I will. Does this make sense to everybody or does it sound like I'm off kilter? So I'm recommending that. That's not an answer to your question. Your question's about difference between personal and collective. So extinction is a collective issue. And when someone brings too much of the collective concern into himself, he won't be able to handle it. That explains Marilyn Monroe. Instead of walking around as a single female with her own personal unique story, the country and world loaded onto her the collective interest in her beauty and erotic look so that she was now carrying the... um, desires, especially sexual, of a large population. And that would, without inner resources and twice or three times a week therapy, that would be hard for any person to carry. So she she might have been somewhat crushed by the collective meaning that was put onto her, projected onto her. She's not just a beautiful woman like many others. She's the one that people put all these projections onto. And of course, they give her roles that exploit that, that make people do it even more. And she she could collapse under it. See what I mean? That would be an example of a collective. Whereas there might be some 
men or women who could, other movie stars who have many projections put on them, they can handle it very well. They're strong enough to do so. So I'm glad we made this distinction. Everybody get the... So we're carrying around the collective fears and the personal fears. The collective wounds and the personal wounds. How do we do the the shielding? We're continually reminding ourselves, okay, this is my story and this is the historical story. This is who I am and these are the projections. So if we were going to look at the givens of relationship, we're going to ask ourselves, how much of what my partner sees in me is a projection or carryover from his own parents put on to me? That would be one of the givens of all relationships. And so what you're doing is you're looking at that and you're saying out loud, I am not your mother, I am not your father. So see if you can find me as you push aside the projections, also called transference. I am transferring onto my partner the feelings needs and expectations that were alive in my childhood with my parents and I am putting them on you. That would be a given of any relationship. It's a feature of the intimacy. There's nothing wrong with it. All you have to do is name it. When I work with interns uh, as a supervisor, I, I always say, any counter-transference that you feel, in other words, any feelings they have toward the clients that uh, become distressing to them, all okay, as long as you talk about it. Bring it up in here in our group. Let's all look at it together. We're going to help you carry it and shield you from whatever dark meaning it may take on. So it's always okay to have carryovers and projections. You can't avoid them, but you should have somebody to talk to about them including your actual partner. I think I'm seeing my mother in you. That would be fairly straightforward. Other questions about this? Uh, Yeah. Uh, Hi, my name's Linda. Going back to fear as a bully, kind of looking at it that way, and talking about the program for handling our own fear that you mentioned, the the three A's there. If 
if you're aware that you're actually spending a lot of time handling other people's fear, and, and I was thinking about it a little more, and I thought, okay, I have a fear of other people's fear. Because mm. you know, it feels like um, sometimes I can be very uh, susceptible. The collective is a good point, but this is more on an interpersonal level, that, the, that I want to control other people's fear so that I'm not fearing their fear, taking me wherever we're going with it. And there's, you know, sometimes that's an ongoing issue for me in um, interpersonal relationships. So how can I shield myself from fearing fear? Uh, could you give a specific example um, of somebody else's fear and well, how it gets... When, okay, so when you're <clears throat> in a, a situation and um, the anxious person immediately interprets the situation as um, dangerous, and it's not dangerous to me at all, it's just... It's just like, well, we'll just handle it, whatever comes. Like in um, maybe in an, a new social situation or, or in a different environment where we don't know where we are or you get lost. And one person reacts as if this is really a bad thing that we're lost. And I'm like, you know, U-turns are invented, asking directions, whatever. Um, but I find that I'm very anticipating that fear is going to start dominating the situation and we're just going to be dealing on fear level. So I need a shield for that. So it would be, um, first of all, saying it out loud. I can see that you have a fear about this and I don't have the same fear, but I want to help you hold yours. And I'm asking you, not to try to put that on me. Okay, I have to write that down now. <laughs> Just naming the difference really helps. Can you say it again? It's, um, I can see that you have this fear. I don't happen to share it, but I really honor it in you. I would like to help you carry it if you want me to, and I ask that you keep it separate from what we do together. When we're together, you experience your fear without roping me into it. Don't lasso me into it, and uh, I'll do the same. I saw an episode on MASH once in which the doctor was going into the operating room and behind him were two soldiers holding a stretcher. Beside the stretcher was a nurse. The doctor turned to the, to the nurse and said, what, uh, what is his problem? She said, he has a compound fracture in his leg. Compound fracture means the bone is sticking out of the skin instead of simple where it stays in. 
he lifts, he, he heard what she said, but he still wanted to observe. He lifted up the sheet. He looked at the lake, and this is what he said. He said, uh, no, I saw this. <clears throat> I saw this before in World War II. This is not a compound fracture. This is somebody else's bone that was shot off and went into this guy. So what I'm going to do is remove it. I thought right away, that is a psychological metaphor. Some of what we're carrying around came from somebody else. And it feels like our problem, our wound, we could be carrying around our mother's fears for a lifetime. I'll give you a perfect example, somewhat humorous. In my childhood, of course, they didn't, the sweaters were made of 100% wool. And in order to clean them, the mother would have to wash them by hand in cold water and then, you know, do what you have to do. It's a big job. Not just throw it in the washing machine. Today we have cotton sweaters. So when we kids were wearing sweaters made of 100% wool, she was constantly watching us that we didn't do anything that might dirty the sweater (laughs) because that gave her more work to do. So for instance, if you were sitting at the table with your elbows on the table, she would say, take your elbows off the table, David. I don't want any food to get on that sweater. (laughs) This is 50 years later. I cannot wear a wool sweater without walking around like this because I don't want to get it dirty. I'm carrying her fear rather than my own. I'm not blaming her, and I understand where it came from. But that's an example. And all of us have things like that that we've carried over transferred from the past into the present. My book, When the Past is Present, title says it all. Where is the past present? In every interaction. Certainly in every relationship. Uh, Okay, other questions on that? Okay, so you have your handout, which is simply a page from our book, uh, The Five Things We Cannot Change. Um, And it gives you the um, the five givens that we talked about, which are the main ones. So we're going to break up into twos, and this is just going to be for about 10 minutes. And you uh, look on your page that says saying yes to the givens of life. Everybody have this? And you have your five. 
So just take a look at the five and just share with the person next to you which one of these is the one that hits you the hardest. And just share back and forth. I'll ring the bell after nine minutes and then after one more minute, then we'll get back together. So go ahead. Anyone have anything to share um, from what you just talked about? Or any final questions? Anything came up in your dyad that you want to share? So right here and then, yeah. I wondered if you have any advice for how to work with like an auto planning feature in your head that some of us have very strongly and less about the day-to-day planning, but more just the like story that I feel like I tell myself just about whatever circumstances my life has. And then I'm disappointed when it doesn't work out, you know, a year later in the same way that I imagined. But I, I, so I just wonder, I know that's natural, but like your advice on how to not get so attached to sort of your story about your circumstances and where they're going to lead to or not lead to it would be switching from the way I want it to be to I'm open to the way it will play out on its own. Be more like that. It would be a new kind of attitude. Openness is the attitude of the unconditional yes. And then the way I want it to be is the attitude of I need to be in control. And obviously all of us would like that. But that does not align with the givens, one of which is we're not in control most of the time. Other ideas? Oh, yeah. Um, I, we were talking about which one of these was the most, I guess, hard-hitting for us. And we yeah. both had the same one, which was number five. Um, so people are not loving and loyal all the time. And for me, what came up, I guess this is a reflection of what's happened to me in the past, is you know, being cheated on, for example, the loyalty part. So I just had a question for you, because I'm just curious as to what how you put meaning onto this. So is this saying that if, if this is a given in life, and if someone cheats on you, that you should just get over it? Okay, so... <laughs> or is that, is that disloyal to yourself? And... Um, no. So first, of course, I'm grieving that I was hurt in this way. Secondly, I've gone to my three options... I've decided on either number two, don't hurt back, don't retaliate, or number three, 
I'll continue to act with loving kindness toward him or her whenever I see them in the in public. And somehow this is helping me in my practice of loving kindness. Since everything that happens is an opportunity for the practice of mindfulness and loving kindness, then nothing can happen that does not provide a benefit. And all through the day we've been talking about mindfulness because yes is mindfulness. It's a yes to the reality shorn of all the add-ons that we bring in. Expectations, need to control, attachment to the outcome, fear of what might happen, desire that it come out my way, etc. We're shaving those off and going directly to the only place that yes can go to, which is the pure reality. So this is the mindful yes. Mindful meaning um, just here and now, just this, without the usual layers that have become habitual in my mind. Such as, how do I make this different? Who's to blame for this? How do I get in control of this? What, in this is, what is there in this to be afraid of? We're letting go of all of those. When we go to the pure, yes. Other examples? <clears throat> yes. Hi, everybody. I'm Farina. And Hi. Uh, I talked to Ellen, my yeah. next. And um, she asked me which one speaks to you the most. And I said, pain is part of my life. And um, I shared with Ellen that but through my daughter's methamphetamine ad- addiction, which lasted from her teenage years till 39. And uh, I went through a lot of pain, through a lot of uh, misery for also health reasons. I had breast cancer. And um, my daughter is clean and sober, 10 years now. She's going to be 50. And my granddaughter had a... Um, addiction of violence and cutting and uh, was put into a um, school a, a behavior modification character building school in Jamaica for three years and uh, she's now happily married with three children and uh, just bought her first home at age 26 and um, I I was asked in through those through the school my granddaughter was in we the family had to go through a rigid program to change our ways at home. Hmm. So and I was asked to do a gratitude list and I I did it for four years. Um I'm still doing it and um 
What am I grateful for in the relationship with my higher power? What am I grateful for in the relationship with my daughter, the addict? And what am I grateful for in the relationship with myself? Mm. And five things in general, and no duplications. And 90 days, no duplication. Then you have 720 things that you're grateful for. I did it for four years. Yeah, and that has helped to change my attitude to gratitude. Well, I've learned to drop the fears too. Well, you're giving us a reason to be thankful to you for (laughs) giving us such a wonderful story. Okay, anybody else had a question? Okay, well, we're winding up. I want to... Oh, we have another question. Yeah. Hi, my name is Leslie. Um, it's, not, it's not so much a question, but I kind of wanted to say something to you, I think, who, had, who mentioned the thing about um, people are not loving and loyal all the time. And I think when I first heard that or realized that in my life, it was really scary in, in a way. And then my nine-year-old daughter just did something this morning that helped me kind of maybe understand that. Her name's Lucy, and I know Lucy loves me above all else. And Lucy lied to me and made up some elaborate story about how she had gotten these things, these candies, out of a pinata that her teacher had for her birthday. And she had gotten these, and I said, but Lucy, did you get those out of my closet? And she said, no, no, the pinata. And I said, I think those came out of my closet. And for a minute, I was like, ouch. She just, Lucy didn't tell me the truth and it felt rotten. And I'm 46 years old and it shouldn't bother me, but it did. And then I realized, you know what? Lucy loves me, but she's not going to be loyal and honest all the time, but it doesn't change her deep, deep love for me and I'm still safe there. Mm -hmm. And so in a weird way, Lucy even helps me understand things because I also, and I can say it with a smile on my face now, had an ex-husband I was married to for 16 years and he had his other assignments on the side and did all of those things. And I know today, as sure as I sit here, he still loves me to this day, to the best of his ability. And because of that, and I love him too, and because of that somehow it's not all lost and it's not all scary. Um, It hurts, but it can also be okay to have a different kind of a relationship even with him, if that makes sense. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be all or nothing. So I just thought I'd tell you the Lucy story from this morning in case it helps. <laughs> Great. Well, we're getting all positive ideas. Thank you. So I just had a question from this morning, actually, when you used the, I think you said it was young, unconditional yes, which we yeah. talked about a lot. An unconditional yes to the conditions of existence without... <coughs> protest. And so my, my question is, what, what is the difference between unconditional yes and unconditional love? It's exactly the same. That it's a yes to everything that you are. I teach at Esalen. Oh, and I want to remember this Thursday night, 7.30, I'll be at Many Rivers Bookstore in Sebastopol, in case you want to come. I'm on the topic of uh, poetry and our spiritual life. And it's free, and you're welcome to come. But anyway, teaching at Esalen, um, 
when we go around and do our introductions, I have I write on the um, flip chart, all that you are is welcome here. And we all say that together to each person who presents his or her story. So that's the yes. It's a loving welcome to everything that you are with all your limitations and all your gifts. And when I'm saying yes that way, that is love. Love is the unconditional yes to everything that someone is. And when it comes to yourself, love is the unconditional yes to everything you are and have been. Well, I'd like to end with a beautiful poem by Tennessee Williams, which combines the topic of the yes to the first given, which is how things change and end. And then it ends with an acknowledgement of our fear, even though we see how nature is practicing yes. Uh, Dogen, the founder of the Soto's Zen school, lived in the 12th century. He said, all of nature is practicing Buddhism. They're all saying yes to the changes, to the impermanence. And uh, in this poem, he's looking at an orange tree and he's he's acknowledging and pointing out that the the orange tree with its beautiful golden balls is noticing that the sky is starting to get darker and that the, a change will happen and that the beautiful golden fruit will start to wither and the tree is letting that be okay. And then he's asking that the same courage of letting go that the tree exhibits would be in him. And this poem is from uh, his play, The Night of the Iguana. How calmly does the orange tree begin to see the blanching sky. The broken stem, the plummeting to earth, and then an intercourse not well designed for beings of a golden kind, whose native green must arch above the earth's obscene corrupting love. Still the ripe fruit and the branch observe the sky begin to blanch without a cry without a prayer, with no betrayal of despair. Oh, courage, could you not as well select a second place to dwell? Not only in that golden tree, 
but in the frightened heart of me. So so it's an appreciation of how the things in nature accept all the givens with an unconditional yes. And if they have the power to say yes that way, it must be that they can empower me to say yes in the same way. So now when I'm in nature and I see these seasonal changes, instead of just remarking on them, instead of just noticing them, I can say, oh, give me that same power. It's okay for us to say this. We can call upon powers in nature to empower us. And I'll use one last example, which is personal to me. And I thought of it when I made this distinction between the personal and the collective. Because we have a personal mother, the one who gave birth to us. And then we have an archetypal mother, collective. That would be mother nature. Or in religious traditions, it's the female divinity, Kuan Yin in Buddhism, Mary in Christianity. One day I was in a church in Rome and I was all by myself and uh, I went up toward the altar and above the altar was a picture of the Virgin Mary holding the infant Jesus. And this picture was painted in such a way that it showed a warm tenderness in the way she was holding him. And without thinking, I looked into her eyes and I said, hold me like that. So I want to go on saying that to her, to Mother Nature, to everyone, hold me like that. That would be the end of isolation. And I hope the same thing happens to you. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.